It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we look at the legacy of the sequencing of the human genome. And how the immune system helps muscles repair. I'm Nick Petridge Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. This week marks the 20th anniversary of a momentous scientific milestone. The publication of the first draft of the human genome in papers in Nature and Science. To mark this achievement, we've got a wealth of content in this week's edition of Nature, and to get a sense of its legacy, I spoke with Nature's editor-in-chief, Magdalena Skipper. Magdalena is a geneticist by training, and in previous roles has worked as chief editor of the journal Nature Reviews Genetics, senior editor for genetics and genomics at Nature, and a bunch more besides, so she knows the field pretty well. I started our chat by asking Magdalena to cast her mind back to the turn of the millennium and give her recollections on what the field of genome sequencing was like when she was in the lab. What I remember best in relation to the Human Genome Project and these sort of heady days of genome sequencing was in fact when I was back in Cambridge, I was doing my PhD at the end of the 90s, and I was studying C. elegans, which is this little model organism, worm that geneticists love, and its genome was also being sequenced at the time. We were very close to the Sanger Center, as it was called then, and of course that center plays an important part in the sequencing of the human genome as well. And in fact, one of the leaders of the public effort of the Human Genome Project, John Selston, was the examiner of my PhD thesis. So I was very close to that community. And one of the things that I remember the most was that feeling of coming to the lab, in my case, to work on C. elegans, turning on the computer, going to the database to see if, quote unquote, my favorite part of the genome had been sequenced overnight. Um, that was an amazing feeling, which I think is hard to imagine today. Well, Magdalena, in your time working as an editor, you obviously saw a lot of genomics and genetics papers come across your desk. How have those fields changed? And maybe more broadly, how has science changed, do you think, as a result of the Human Genome Project? Thinking about 
what it was like back then from today's perspective, I'm not even sure that we could say that there was a field of genomics back then as we understand it now. The publication itself was, of course, a, a true landmark, but in many ways it was what the project was doing as it was going along. The fact, most notably to me, actually, that the decision was made by the project to share the data as the data were being generated without any restrictions. In fact, there was an agreement, the, the, the Bermuda Agreement, which set out the fact that the data were going to be shared immediately without exceptions, without restriction. But at the same time, it protected the data generators, if you like, so that they would be able to publish first. And that definitely influenced the whole field as it was being born, if you like, in the sense that we understand today. That was, to me, the most fundamental influence. But of course, there were other related aspects. And that is that in a project like the Human Genome Project, so many researchers from different parts of the globe had to come together to work together. And so genomics in general, today, when we think about the field, we think about multi-lab um, efforts coming together, collecting the data, analyzing the data together, often in that distributed but collaborative way. And so the project and the publication really set the stage and, and the, the bar, if you like, for this type of work. If we can talk about the legacy of the publication, then, what are some of the key areas that emerged as a result, would you say? If you think about it, we understand so much more about biology, so much more about population dynamics, so much more about ecology. And then, of course, there is the very human-focused aspect of the legacy, our understanding of human biology and, indeed, human disease. Armed with the genome, we are much better able to diagnose so-called monogenic diseases. So these are the diseases which are caused by single genes. There's a whole pool of so-called undiagnosed diseases, which are phenotypically very complex, but there is no obvious underlying molecular diagnosis. And sequencing has been invaluable in diagnosing these diseases. They're often diseases that are diagnosed in very young children. And finally, are the so-called genetically complex diseases. And here, the whole field, the whole approach of genome-wide association studies, only possible because we have the sequence of the human genome, has absolutely blossomed, enabling us to understand which variation in which areas of the genome contributes towards phenotypically complex diseases such as cardiovascular disease or cancer, and of course, metabolic diseases and, and many others. Well, if we've learned so much about disease, and the potential is there, of course, to learn a lot more, how can we make sure that the information that is gained benefits everyone? I mean, if we think back to the original publication of the genome, certainly it was skewed in favour of those of European descent. So how can we make sure that genomics is equitable and can really benefit humanity as a whole? That's a very important question. So the community is beginning to realise that there has been an inequity and much needs to be done to adjust for it. Over the past few years, there have been some really impressive efforts, for example, in Asia to understand actually the population history and dynamics. So that incidentally informs us about how the world 
has been peopled, populated, but very importantly in the context of medicine to provide tools so that individuals of non-European descent can be better diagnosed and the drugs that are prescribed for their conditions can be more effective and have fewer side effects. There are other parts of the world which continue, unfortunately, to lag behind. Again, one effort that I can specifically mention is H3 Africa, for example, that specifically aims to characterize genetically and genomically populations in Africa. And of course, there's a great diversity of human populations in Africa. Another example is that of indigenous populations for which very few studies have been done. And of course, these studies need to be done in an inclusive way, not just in the sense of including samples from these populations. We need to see more scientists who belong to these populations who themselves drive these projects and, and engage with them. But also we need to engage the communities themselves. So indeed, those studies can be designed better to fit their particular needs. Finally, then, if we think back to the year 2000, there was a, a press conference with the then US President Bill Clinton and UK Prime Minister Tony Blair when the sequence was first presented before the publication of the papers. And that was such an exciting time. I mean, it was likened to the moon landings in terms of its importance. Do you think the promise of the Human Genome Project that was assumed, that was hoped for at the time, has been realised? If you consider how many contributions and many different levels, some of the ones we've spoken about in terms of, I would say, almost kickstarting the whole field of genomics as we know it today. How much has come from that information? And then also there is the sort of social aspect of the way that science is done itself. In the life sciences, in biological sciences, the Human Genome Project was really um, the first template, if you like, for these large multi-center, multidisciplinary collaborations because you have to share, because you have to work with those whose forte lies in type of analysis or discipline that may not be so familiar to you. So in that sense, I think it's not only just delivered, but it has gone beyond it. There were promises that were made which verbatim have not been fulfilled. But I would argue that, as always is the case in science, when we arrive at a certain goalpost, so many new questions and new complexities come to light that the next goalpost that we might have established previously suddenly appears to be ill-defined. New questions, new challenges arise. And that's actually a, a really beautiful and wonderful thing. That was Nature's Editor-in-Chief, Magdalena Skipper. To coincide with the 20th anniversary of the publication of the Human Genome Sequence, we have two new films up on our YouTube channel. One looks at the field of ancient DNA, while the other investigates how work on the genome of the C. elegans nematode worm led to the open science approach of the Human Genome Project. Find links to those and all of nature's other human genome content in this week's show notes. Coming up, we'll be finding out the particulars of how the immune system is involved in muscle repair. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. 
You might have thought that there was some sort of evolutionary reason that certain cultures favour spicy food, but according to new research, probably not. It's been suggested that the reason people in many hot countries have a predilection for hot food could be due to spices having protective antimicrobial properties, perhaps creating a selection pressure to prevent foodborne infection, which is more likely in warmer regions. But after analysing over 33,000 recipes from around the world, researchers discovered that spice use is not associated with how hot a country is, but is better explained by socioeconomic status. There was also no association between where spices grow, cultural diversity or risk of infection. Instead, the researchers suggest that it's more coincidence that warmer countries have spicier food and they just happen to generally have lower incomes. Sample that spicy research in Nature Human Behaviour. Having a strong group of female friends may be one of the most important things for survival in giraffes. A study of more than 500 giraffes has found that when females are more sociable with one another, forming larger groups, they have far better chances for survival than more socially isolated giraffes. When female giraffes form a tower, the collective noun for a group of giraffes, they benefit from cooperative childcare, increased foraging success, and they even seem to be less stressed. These benefits outweighed negative effects of the environment or even the impact of humans. Tell your girlfriends about that research over at the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Next up, Shamni Bundell has been finding out how the immune system can help regenerate damaged muscle cells, and whether doctors could one day use the same pathway to treat muscle injuries. To find out more about the new research, Shamni spoke to one of the researchers involved, Danishika Ratnayaka. Why were you interested in understanding what happens in our muscles when they're injured? So I was always really fascinated by regeneration. And there's a lot of tissues that have the ability to, or don't have the ability to regenerate. And the thing with muscle is you need to be able to regenerate it. So I was really interested to take an animal model that regenerates really, really well and kind of study how it does that. And when you started off this project, what was the basic understanding of how muscle repair works and how we deal with injuries to muscles? Muscle regenerates by the stem cell population that is present in the muscle and this stem cell population has been known for decades. However, you really can't just take those stem cells and transplant them into muscle and it will not work. So at the start of this project, it was just to get a fundamental understanding on how these stem cells were able to function and particularly to try and find out the external signals that were required to allow these muscle stem cells to function properly. And how do you go about doing that? I mean, it must be pretty hard to find out what's going on in a, in a living muscle inside a body. So that is where the zebrafish larvae comes in. And they're amazing. They regenerate their muscles super well. And the best thing about them is that they are transparent as larvae. So what we do is we use genetic engineering to introduce uh, fluorescent proteins. We just tag what cells were interested, what tissues were interested, we carry out an injury, and we just watch. And did you have any clues as to what to look for when you were trying to look for the external factors that are going to stimulate these stem cells? 
we obviously knew that the immune system was very, very important. And we knew that macrophages, which is the main player in this story, was a key component of that response. So we did just start looking at that. So what did you see in your transparent zebrafish? So, well, the first thing we did was we carried out an injury and we had these fluorescently labeled macrophages and we had the muscle as well, fluorescently labeled. And we saw, as expected, a whole bunch of macrophages coming into the wound site. But at about 12 hours, we saw that um, some of them, about 50%, started to leave the wound site. However, 50% um, decided to stay. And then we saw that the macrophages started to interact or cuddle the stem cells. And they kept cuddling them for about six hours. And then at the end of that time period, we saw that the stem cell undergoes division. And what was really interesting was inside the wound, no muscle stem cells underwent division without a macrophage that was kind of cuddling it and hanging out with it. So we were like, okay, there is something going on here. So so whatever the macrophages are doing, they are able to trigger the stem cells to do all the things that they need to do to heal that wound. So what exactly is going on during these cuddles between these two cells? So what we found out was that the macrophage is releasing a a protein that goes and interacts with the receptor that is on the muscle stem cell. And this two-way communication was done by NAMPT from the macrophages side or nicotinamide phosphoribosyl transferase. And the receptor on the muscle stem cell was CCR5. And then we went on to do quite a lot of genetic studies in the larval zebrafish to really confirm that the communication was done by these two parts. Um, and all our studies confirmed that you really need NAMPT and CCR5 on these two types of cells to be able to get muscle stem cell proliferation. So this is kind of the first time that we've understood these macrophages being able to use the specific NAMPT molecule to trigger this sequence, which means we could then potentially take that and use it in, you know, maybe in a healthcare setting. We really wanted to see could you just take NAMPT and add it into an injury site? And would that allow that injury to heal better? So we wanted to look at an injury type that normally is quite hard to heal. So if, for example, you lose quite a lot of muscle in a certain area, it's very, very hard even for your stem cells to build it up. So we did what we call a volumetric muscle loss injury in a mouse leg. And then we introduced NAMPT in a little gel-like substance that allows NAMP to stay in the wound site. And then we went back 10 days after and we looked at the injury. And what we were really amazed was that at a certain dose of NAMP, which is not very high, the full muscle was completely regenerated. So the control mice would really struggle and and a lot of those fibres wouldn't be regenerated, but your NAMP-treated mice looked pretty much normal. Exactly. So that particular result was really, I mean, we were amazed, I would say. So what you're doing is is stimulating a a sort of an already existing process within our natural immune system. Is there any concern that by sort of pushing it further than it usually goes, that there could be some downsides that we don't know about? I mean, that's always a possibility, of course. But what I think is in these big injuries where you don't get proper repair, the whole immune environment is completely different to how the immune environment you would have in a healthy, well-healing system. So maybe the macrophages that 
actually secrete or produce NAMT are not even present or have not even been able to reach that state. So we think we're just going to try and revert it to the proper response that it should happen. And you're thinking about medical applications for this and being able to actually use this to treat muscle injuries in, in human patients. No, definitely. Um, like we would be very um, interested to develop this further as well. And especially, I mean, coming from such a fundamental question of trying to understand regeneration and then being able to find something that could be applied in an actual human is pretty, I mean, I find that really amazing and really what science should be about. That was Danashika Ratnayaka of the Hubrecht Institute in the Netherlands and formerly of Monash University, Australia. You can find her paper linked in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Nick, what's caught your attention this week? Well, Ben, I was reading an article in the Washington Post, which is all about various legislation and court rulings that are affecting how environmental policy will go forward in the United States. Right. And what's the background to this? And what what was sort of brought in? And then how is it affecting how things might go? Well, a couple of weeks before Biden became president, uh, the Trump administration brought in a rule that was supposed to aid transparency in the sort of data that is used by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, in making its regulations and public health recommendations. And this rule said that they would have to assign higher weight to scientific studies that had all the raw data available and there to be scrutinised and um, lower weight to those studies that do not do this, which may sound like a good thing. Like there's a lot of advocates of open data and more access to the underlying data within science. However, this was criticised by many people because it was seen as maybe sort of a Trojan horse that would prevent some sort of good science being used in making environmental policy. And and the reason for that is a lot of what the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, does is they make legislation about public health, and that relies on things like patient data, which is confidential. So studies that had that sort of thing would have less weight than those studies that didn't, where the raw data was available. Well, Nick, you said that these rules were brought in towards the end of President Trump's administration. And of course, US politics has moved on, as we've discussed on the podcast before, and now President Biden has come in. Has he looked to maybe reverse some of these decisions? Yeah, so that's part of what's happened here. But also the rule was challenged by several environmental groups. And a district judge made the decision that actually this rule wasn't a thing that was possible because it was a substantive change rather than a procedural change. And for various reasons, that meant that it wasn't okay. And then the Biden administration has waded in and said, okay, in that case, can you vacate this, which is a term that basically means overrule this. And that's what's happened now. So we're back to where we were before then, where all of the evidence can potentially be used. Yes. And um, the outgoing Trump administration officials who were part of this have said that this rule was just brought in to make sure that everything is transparent and to enhance public trust. And they hope that that is something the Biden administration will carry forward. And they think it's somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction from the environmental groups. However, critics are quite happy because they think this all 
enable more of the Trump era regulations to be pulled back because there were many concerns throughout the presidency of Donald Trump that the environment was taking a back seat to a lot of other issues and there were deregulation of things like how much carbon emissions power plants and things can make and that sort of stuff is also being taken back now with the Biden administration so there is hope that there'll be there'll be more positive legislation in terms of the environment and things like climate change which was not shall we say a darling of the Trump administration but Ben what have you found this week well Nick I've been reading a story this week about a study on blue whales which was reported in the independent and it's having a look at their ability to sort of move freely around the ocean right okay and what is happening to their ability to move freely around the ocean. I've got a funny feeling it's not going to be good news. No, sadly not, Nick. Well, in particular then, we're talking about an area of the South Pacific off the coast of Chile. And uh, this is a very important foraging and nursery ground for blue whales. But there's something that appears to be, you know, really affecting their ability to be able to move freely. And that is sadly once again human activity but specifically in this case maritime activity you know fishing boats and the like which creates a lot of noise and often collisions as well right okay and so i mean this doesn't sound great but is there anything that we can do about it or what what is this new finding uncovered well nick researchers tracked 15 blue whales over four years and combined that with data on where ships sailed right so they combined these two data sets to get an idea of some priority areas for conservation you know what what areas were really important to the whales and where collisions might happen and there was one video from this research that was doing the rounds maybe you saw it yourself nick but i'll certainly put it in the show notes and it shows a sped up week in the life of a blue whale as it tries to navigate around a thousand different boats and ships wow okay and i mean is this a thing that happens often like it's a huge area the ocean are they having to dodge and weave all the time to try and avoid human influence well nick the answer to that is absolutely yes so this video looks a bit like a video game but it's quite harrowing when you realize what it is so it's kind of a square of a map of the ocean of this area and there's a blue dot that represents this blue whale and there's a bunch of other orange dots which are the ships moving about and you can kind of see this whale trying to get to a place and then a ship comes towards it and it has to suddenly veer off into a different direction and maybe it has to sort of swim very quickly in front of a bunch of other ships to get to where it's trying to go and it's going backwards and forwards and I mean it must be quite harrowing to be a blue whale in this area of the ocean. Mm, Yeah and you mentioned sort of conservation areas and things does this work sort of show where might be good places to do this do they need like corridors to get to different breeding grounds and things like that well the authors of this paper nick are saying that actions are required you know particularly in some cases you don't know how many collisions happen between boats and these blue whales and what's interesting as well is that 89 of the ships that were tracked as part of this study were involved in the region's very extensive salmon farming industry. So I guess there's the hope that that things can be changed to really give more of a safe space for these magnificent mammals to be able to move freely and and get where they need to go. Well, hopefully there will be more in the way to protect these um, beautiful and enormous mammals in the future. So thank you for telling me about that, Ben. And listeners, if you'd like to know more about all the stories we discussed, you'll find links to them in the show notes. And if you're interested in more stories like this, but instead as an email, then make sure you check out The Nature Briefing. Again, we'll put a link in the show notes where you can sign up. That's all for this week, but don't forget to check out our new videos and all the other content on the sequencing of the human genome. 
As usual, head over to the show notes where you can find links to all of that and keep an eye on your podcast feed for the next edition of CoronaPod, coming out later this week. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Petrichow. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 